0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn for Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Cannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to check out all the content we put out into the internet. Uh, Follow me on Twitter at at Focus Compound. That's the best place to get everything that we put out into the universe. Um, You could go and uh, click that about us section if you're watching us on youtube and then also there's a about section on the podcast side of things as well uh, to get access to all of the links affiliated with focus compounding uh, if this is the first time you're tuning in and you are interested in learning more about our money management services or even if this isn't the first time you're tuning in and you're interested uh reach out to me at andrew at FocusCompounding.com uh, to get more information on that too uh, you could go to the invest with us page on FocusCompounding.com. So in today's podcast, we are going to be talking about the yield curve and um, some overlooked bank stocks. We could do a little bit of a, um, a follow-up, if you will, on some stocks that we went over in the past. Um, but really, you know, the market has been, um, you know, selling off. We've had interest rates start to rise. The Fed has signaled that they want to raise interest rates more. Um, and financials have really sold off as like a group if you look at like uh the xlf etf um but really i thought it'd be interesting if we could talk a little bit about um uh, the yield curve and how that works with bank stocks and how you typically think about just investing in bank stocks in general that's sort of the i did a call for questions or call for topics i should Mm -hmm. say on in-depth concepts people would be interested in hearing you talk about and um you know, through DMs and stuff like that, people are always interested to hear you talk about banks and how you think about banks and how you analyze banks, um, what you like about the banking sector um, or the banking industry and how you typically think about it. Um, So I guess before we jump into that, uh, we could hit on the markets currently because it kind of will flow into talking about the yield curve Mm -hmm. and where rates are at. Um, But as I speak... Right now on May 10th, I always got to be careful uh, if we're going to talk about what's going on in the market. I want to give the date. Uh, the S&P 500 is off about 15%. Uh, the NASDAQ is down 25%. Uh, the Russell down about 21%. And the 10-year yield is at uh, 2.977%. It's kind of been hovering around there. Um, There's some companies, I mean, have you followed like some of these names like Upstart, Uh, Which does like AI lending.
1: I've read their 10K and stuff. I'm, you know, I actually kind of mentioned this one uh, before. I I didn't say the name of it, but if you read their filings and stuff, you can read what they, they, um, the sort of AI thing that they have. This is the one that I said I think is really just making a bet on people's education Um, instead of making a bet on a credit thing. That's the idea from the AI thing. They mentioned that they have things going back to the, like, 2010s or something so the only this cycle they've never tested it you know back tested it beyond that but a lot of people asked about it because mm-hmm. you had asked if i there was fintech stuff that people uh, asked me about and everything and this is one of the companies that we talked about yeah
0: yeah i think a lot of fintech names have been brought up recently wait so does that mean it's down 50 percent today 57 percent today 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 so something happened today they reported earnings yesterday and uh yeah down yeah. 57 i mean but it's just these moves are right just and some of the insane. buy insane uh um buy, buy now, pay now pay later, later.
1: yeah we talked about that so some of them will go under probably because they'll they won't be i mean we won't get into which ones but some of their business models would have them losing
0: money pretty quickly um have you seen moves like this i mean mm-hmm. since the crash of i mean what the dot com crash dot-com. I mean, these are huge yeah. moves yeah yeah I don't even think it's as big as the dot-com yet.
1: Yeah. I mean, they're they're big moves, but uh, yeah, we saw some things that were probably bigger in the dot-com era. I mean, it took time, but that's what it's similar to. I mean, I think value this year is outperforming growth by like 15%, right? something like that. So that's the sort of thing that you saw, um, and even more than that in the dot-com period. Yeah.
0: Yeah, what's their business description? So? I mean, that's over $3 billion in market cap just getting destroyed today, obliterated. But it
1: was just created. I mean, yeah. they, yes, that's true. But like, for instance, here's their net investment income, right? What is that net interest income that we have right there? Where are we? Yeah, yep. 47. Yeah, it doesn't give me enough detail about it from, from this. You'd have to look at the balance sheet and stuff. But it's a very, very, very small company. It's like it doesn't have much. Of, I mean, the valuations are like right. It's eight times book. Um, this is a little complicated. I, I read their, their 10K though, but um, though I didn't want to comment on it because I don't like to single out stocks for kind of negative commentary.
0: Also, mm-hmm. oh, it would be in the negative commentary bucket. There you go.
1: Yeah. I mentioned it once before without trying to mention the name of it, but I didn't love what they're doing. Peloton.
0: I mean, you just look yeah. at some of these names. How does that work? That one's Would, down like 90% or something, yeah. right, yeah. Imagine employees that had their options vest way yeah. higher. I mean, how does that almost like the, we could I, call it a a reverse reflexivity.
1: I, I knew someone who uh, was in a um, kind of head of HR or something like that is a pretty high level a job at a .dot .com type thing, which still exists to this day. And it dropped to like nothing, like pennies, right? And so they said like, um, they needed to buy people out and so they had to they wanted to buy him out and uh the offer was like here's how much in cash which seemed like a lot of cash at the time or you could take it in stock um in, in options because of what happened with the options if you taking options but a you know a couple thousand times what he ended up making or something uh yeah something like that it actually would be a huge amount of money um but didn't and that company survived and continues to today um but it was basically like wiped out by that, but it was a rare example of one that was a legitimate sort of business. It hasn't really made a lot of money since then, but it's, you know, still exists to this day and occasionally makes money. And so it's, you know, if if a company can last 20 years, or something from that, the people who get stock now will do well, actually. Um, Peloton's, you can look it up on Quick FS. It's one of the ones that actually dropped to a um, pretty low valuation, right? Let's see. Yeah. So, I mean, it's never made much of a um, profit of any kind, but its gross margins are normal. So, it's now at a EV to sales and price to sales that are normal. So, it's not priced at all like a growth stock based on what it has happening here. Now, if it contracts, then it's a problem, but this is just priced like a normal manufacturer. Gross margins around 35 45%, price to sales of one. It's a manufacturer. That's just your typical sort of thing that you see in any given year um so it's completely had taken out of it the fact that it was a hot stock it's just being priced normally you know but it was doubling its revenue right every year for the last four years or something Mm -hmm. we went over this one had tons of inventory that's a problem you know all the classic problems that you have of uh growing too fast um sort of like when you talked about like what happened with atari or something where it just builds up a huge amount of inventory and everything as if it's going to keep doubling all the time and then things fall apart and so sales drop so much that you actually needed less inventory than you had before and you've had even more and then it you know this is a durable product so you also have that problem people can sell used ones and all that so yeah
0: have you looked at uh, this company at all the joint corporation i looked at it just because people suggested it to me have you seen the moves that this has had last week when we recorded uh it was down like this 40, is 45 percent in a day yeah i've yeah. actually been a customer <laughs> have you yeah. yeah uh were you pleased as a customer i actually was yeah Good. i actually was i know not uh that's uh Sort of well, a we hot look, topic in itself. We
1: can look at quick QuickFS thing. There's all these uh, chiropractic type things and physical therapy things and stuff like that that are always get hot um, as stocks. Yeah. Well, let's see. That Why is, is that?
0: Is that just because they bring up like the total addressable market? All of the chiropractors in America? Mm. It's very salesy sort of thing. It's There's
1: the potential exists for a lot of... Uh, um, sales type driven
0: activity, I think. Um, So it's come down. I mean, it's at three times sales now and the stock's gotta be down. Right, three times sales. Its peak was, you know, 100 bucks, 105 bucks and now it's at 16. Right, so so
1: it it was seven times more expensive at one point. So if that's really true, that's not possible. We must be getting something wrong here. It wasn't at 20 times sales or something like that. That can't be right. Why would the stock have ever been priced? I in? think it
0: was actually at 20 times
1: sales. Let's see. Do we have quarterly? Can we do, let's see. Yeah. That's a uh, key ratios, can we do quarterly? Okay. Things got crazy there, Jeff. Tesla is like, what? Does it ever go up to 10 times sales or something? I don't think. Price to earnings. I'm sorry. Price P. to sales, 18.6. That doesn't make any sense. Why would that ever happen? That let's go back to the overview to understand this. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make, it wouldn't make sense if it was Tesla priced at that level, but it, at least you would have a story that would make sense. Here, I don't understand what that is. It was growing at 20, 30% a year, mm-hmm. 50% a year. We well, f- a long time ago, grew it grew at 100% a year. So for the last... More recently, though, it's been... 30 to 40, 50, 20 yeah. to 50. Uh-huh. So here's the question, right? You're always going to lose money in that. More than 10 times sales, you probably should never... When do you get off the train? 10 times sales. <laughs> you always have to get off at of 10 times sales. I mean, there's all, if you do the math, it's very hard. There's something that could be like a, a startup type thing. Uh, not fully commercialized, right? We have this great idea. Uh, some people have bought it and we can distribute it and whatever. You know? So, of course, there's always going to be some story you know, a search engine or whatever, like there's no revenue and then there's a lot. We talked about Twitter, right? So before Twitter really had much in the way of revenue, it has this service, it's losing a bunch of money. Okay. Then you could say the price to sales could be anything, right? It's more based on the audience size and things like that is how you should do it. But if you really think that the business as you see it today is in some way based, on, is in some way um, representative of what the future business model is, you know, that you're already seeing some earnings from it and all that. Um, the way that the margins will look in the future, then obviously the price to sales needs to be less than 10. You don't want a double-digit price to sales. Almost anything that's a double-digit price to sales is going to eventually lose you a lot of money, even if the business does really, really well. It's just too expensive. Unless
0: you held when it wasn't 10 times sales. You mean you bought it below 10 times sales It went over and then came back down? Oh, I'm just saying maybe you got in early. And it became and that might be the case here. Let's look at the chart. Valued. I mean, it's just like, how do you... So, okay. If you think so about as like long 100 as baggers... Be-
1: well, this one here. As long as you bought before, not that long ago. 2020,
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. So that's fine. You could buy then. It goes up, it goes back down. I mean, Netflix has fallen apart recently, right? Amazon's fallen apart recently. Just like in terms of large losses in a day or two. Um, for, you know, business reasons. They had very, mm-hmm. you know, concerning sorts of results in terms of putting more and more they were making more which is what happens with these things right so the thing that started to worry people about let's say amazon or netflix is they put more and more investment in and they were basically shrinking you know they're basically slowing down while piling in more and more investment which is what happened the dot-com things actually by the time that the stocks were imploding um, they were growing rapidly so you had stocks coming down 50% at the same time, they're doubling their sales because their price to sales got too high. But this time it's worse. There's more companies at much worse price to sales ratios. And there's not much you can do to fix a high price to sales ratio. Yeah, I'm looking at, I mean, anything e-commerce related. Really. I mean, look Etsy's at Etsy. Etsy's interesting. Etsy, so Etsy's really interesting because it's a really, really good business. Now they're having problems so i think there's some question about the sustainability of the business and all that kind of stuff but it's an excellent business the business model is really profitable compared to anything even the things i just mentioned like it's you know it's a better business than like an amazon or netflix or something in terms of its business model but the question of whether it'll grow in the future and stuff and also you know because there's kind of people will they leave the the platform are they you know kind of what do you want to call it on strike sort of they're not employees, but mm-hmm. um and the uh price is really very reasonable. So right, the EV to sales is five to six, mm-hmm. price to sales five. five, six, five. Yeah. And it achieved an operating margin that was in the um twenty percent range. Yeah. Yeah. And better than that is the gross margins are even better and it was growing fast. So those sorts of things. It also was profitable for several years before the pandemic. So got to a crazy price and I don't know about what their future will be, but it's one of the most sort of uh, solid businesses of the things that people bring up. This is in a category that's different from some of the things we just looked at before. I don't know if that means their future will be good or not, but they're very, you could understand why someone would price Etsy at 10 times sales, even though it's too high. It's now at five. Um, but it makes a lot of sense. It sort of, you know, has the economics of an eBay or something like that. What
0: about like a Shopify. I don't know enough about Shopify. Yeah, you just these moves have just been crazy. I mean, we're kind of for Shopify right back down to the COVID uh, low.
1: Yeah, but they weren't that cheap before. That's the problem that we have. Uh-huh. So if we look at Shopify, right, what's the price to sales? nine times EV to sales is eight. And look how bad it is compared to etsy mm-hmm. no history of profitability before the pandemic then you have the pandemic much lower operating margins much lower gross margins uh everything about it is worse than etsy that we can see here now and Etsy's cheaper now people who are knowledgeable about this might know why shopify is much better than etsy or whatever and why its future will be brighter but certainly nothing in the past shows those sorts of things um just all these names that but here's another one. I mean, like the Darley's. Well, I was asked about this on the panel, right? Sort of. On the panel, people said, like, well, is this the capital? These are capital light businesses. And so it's changed and it doesn't matter. And my point was if in the 1800s you'd start a railroad, today you lose money for 10 years. You know, like people say Uber is capital light, it's not capital light because it will have accumulate 13 years or whatever of losses before it generates any return. When you do it on a present value basis, it's the same as sinking a huge amount of actual capital into the business. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, how much was it losing at times? Let's look, we can look at the cash flow statement. It'll be a better indicator. Yeah. Okay. So, oh, um, so several billion dollars and that is not a, also you're giving away part of the company too in addition to that which we're ignoring so ignore that the actual cash costs for it were uh, several billion dollars more than one billion every single year for many of those years if we then say okay how much will it earn a couple of years from it, it expects to be profitable uh or i should say it, it probably expects to be consistently profitable starting in maybe 2024 um it'll probably be profitable before then but i don't know if it'll be profitable all four quarters in a meaningful way especially taking into account stock-based compensation um but if we ignore that stuff yeah and then we also have to take into account acquisitions so this is something that's been investing several billion dollars a year yeah um so and what's you know now we can look at it we'll go to the overview so if you look at it on even if you look at it on market cap basis it's not that impressive Right, mm-hmm. how much money have you put in versus how much is it valued at today? And today, it's valued at three times sales on a business that doesn't really make money. So, and then you adjust for the fact that interest rates, real rates, and all of that have changed, so that the 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 uh, DCF was going to look different in future years, possibly. You know, this is why like BWX Technologies decided not to go ahead with a. Um, a program that was modular nuclear power which some other companies did the argument is not that it wasn't possible to commercialize it or that it would not eventually have customers but that in 2015 or whatever that it wasn't realistic that they were going to get much in the way of revenue of revenue and free cash flow and stuff until 2025 and let's say and beyond um, and that even if you had a really good product and made a lot of money after that the the math just doesn't work you have up the, all this upfront cost and then you have for something that doesn't produce any free cash flow for you for over 10 years. And Uber, at some point, it'll be a, from the time it was started to then they'll have been in an investment phase for like 15 years or something before they're really churning out free cash flow.
0: Yeah, they uh, the CEO of Uber, he sent out an email to employees which was leaked to the press basically saying it's not about EBITDA and adjusted EBITDA anymore. Now it's all about free cash flow.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just
0: funny though, like the shift, you think it would always be about free cash flow, and growing free cash flow per share, really. I'm curious, I mean, one of the topics that people wanted to hear your opinion on was stock based compensation, and how you typically think about it. Now, the companies that we focus on, it may not be as huge of line items, but we don't, if you're
1: issuing a lot of stock, we won't buy your we won't. uh, I won't invest in a company that's issuing a lot of stock to insiders, to employees, just won't do it. Um, if they're acquiring companies with it, it's a different story, but the way that I do it is I calculate how much I think that they're, um, issuing in in percentage terms. And then I take that as drag on the return. I don't calculate the value, which is crazy. Uh, the value where they say, oh, it's worth less because our stock is worth less. So if we give away more of a less valuable stock, which by the way, it's the reverse, if they're giving it away at those prices and stuff, this is worse to give away more of it. Um, but that was a dot-com thing. I mean, you could see like Intel was producing a lot of free cash flow in the dot-com period and they would just buy back their stock. And so they just had earnings that just didn't really exist because they they earned a lot of money, but then they gave a lot of stock and then they said we have to buy back our stock to offset the dilution and stuff. So, you know, then that so part of the early 2000s that was a thing.
0: So just so everyone knows, it's sort of a really common sense way to do it. If you underwrite a return at 15% a year, but they're either buying back or diluting by 1%, you would subtract or add that to the 15%.
1: Yeah, so I think UK companies usually include a thing that says that there's a, what is it, the recommendation is generally of good corporate governance is not to issue more than 10% of the company within any 10-year period or something like that. In other words, not to issue average more than 1% dilution over a long period of time. Some other countries have some things that mention that, the US doesn't. Um, A lot of these companies that are these, tech-type things issue a fair amount of stock. And sometimes it's noticeably different, as we talked about with Twitter, as we talked about with... um, uh, I was saying that Activision isn't horrible compared to, like, a Twitter or something like that. We're trying to compare companies with similar sort of market caps. Um, Yeah, there's a company in the UK um, that did some consulting-type work. um, And uh, I think... Did they change their name... Well, anyway, um, I kind of liked the company and the price wasn't crazy, but the issuance of shares was so high to insiders basically to compensate them because it was a a science type thing. So that's sort of how they're used to getting paid. These people who come from academic backgrounds and stuff, just like you get a lot at at tech type companies Um, coming from those things into like a startup type stuff. They expect to be paid in equity. And uh, it, so when you kind of factored that in, something that looked like it could be returning you 9, 10% a year all the time comes down to 6 because they're issuing so much stock in that case. And they were doing it so consistently over time. That was a major problem. Yeah. The, one of the cheapest ways that you can get yourself a much better return over time is to focus on companies that issue a lot less stock. So I don't mind companies that don't buy back any stock ever. That's fine with me. And then companies that do buy back a lot of stock, but it's gonna help you
0: out a lot. Yeah. One quick way you could see that is I mean, look at the income statement, obviously, but quick FS is good because you could kind of eyeball that over a 10-year period to see if they've uh, diluted. Like, if you're watching this screen now, Twitter, their shares, the dilution has gone from 117 million shares to uh, 798 million shares outstanding. Right. And
1: to be fair to them, you know, there's not the the last six years, five, six years is a lot less. So the numbers that we're giving are worrying are before then. But even then, they still gave away... Um, something like 15% of the company in six or seven years. So even in the slower period of giving stuff away, we're still talking about several percent a Mm -hmm. year. I mean, would you pay uh, like management fee, you know, on your stake in some company of two or 3% a year? People don't want to pay that on a mutual fund that they're doing these things. And yet you're basically paying this company to take that much
0: off the top of your returns that you're getting. And here's a good example of the opposite, VeriSign. They... Uh, use their free cash flow to buy back stock and you could see that the shares outstanding have gone down over time right so i have
1: to adjust for these things and um it's a little complicated because i feel like most people adjust one of two ways one they just take the actual reported earnings and stuff which means you're not taking back the share-based compensation so you're in essence charging them for it there but I think that's very confusing and it, it, it makes the um, results vary a lot more than they should. But the other one is people will say that they're buying that their share count is falling and everything, but then give them full credit for the free cash flow. Whereas if we go to the cash flow statement, um, a lot of times companies do have stock-based compensation. So in the case of VeriSign, it's, it's very predictable, but it started in the low 30s, it's at 50 something now. That really has to come out of free cash flow if you're gonna reduce your share count over time because you're buying that back every year. And so that's the other way of thinking about it. So you it. basically adjust for that? Right. But again, I like thinking in terms of the percent of the company in all these cases, because when the price moves around, that's important. Like I get much more interested in a company that buys back a lot of stock when the stock gets really cheap, because now those same buybacks are going to be much more effective in, in um, decreasing the share count, right? Because as you can see, Verisign seems to just buy back use their free cash flow to buy back their stock so if you cut verisign stock in half they'll be able to buy back twice as many shares and that's what it seems like from the results in the past they're not buying back set numbers of shares we can see here they're buying back very steady amounts of their free cash flow in fact cash flow from operations and um, net issuance of common stock are very close mm-hmm. in a lot of years so basically they're using their cash flow from operations to buy back their stock which is great and uh, that means that as it gets cheaper versus cash flow from operations, you know, or free cash flow, they're they're pretty close in this case, um, you know that that's going to mean they're going to buy back more and more stock. And so your returns are going to be better and better. A lot of stock buyback actually isn't necessarily that helpful if the company becomes expensive, right? If the stock's expensive. So then you wouldn't be as excited about it. If we look at the overview, what are they at in terms of their, yeah, so they're at 14, 14 times sales. Time sales yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So their buybacks aren't going to mean a lot right mm-hmm. so even if they use every dollar that they have to buy back stock right now um this is saying that they could buy back what four percent of the company so that's okay how much have they been growing lately five percent two percent one percent so your return is going to be four percent plus five two or one Your are mid to you know, 5 to 10% returns in the stock at, at best. That's with them using all their buyback. If they were instead at 5 times sales, right, or something like that, then the buyback would be getting you almost a 10% return probably. They could buy back like 10% or more of their stock. Plus, you'd have a little growth. You're now talking about like a 15% return just from a tiny bit of growth and a big stock buyback. The problem with a company that buys back a lot of stock is that its um, returns become highly dependent on the value of the the stock in the marketplace so it becomes more of a value stock um, return so if it's at a gross stock price something that buys back stock then you want to avoid it because it's basically using its what this company is doing right now is it's making investments at a five percent or 4%, in this case, return, right? EV to free cash flow is 25 times. So if they turn around and buy their stock back mm-hmm. at a price like that, that's basically like making an investment at like a 4% to maybe 7%. Yeah, you so know. flip the multiple. Yeah, and it depends on how much the revenue growth is, but this revenue growth has not been double digits for many, many years.
0: So you're making a 5 to 10% investment. Why do you think management teams aren't more selective about their buybacks? They have it on autopilot. Why is that? I think it's just a way to burn off the cash that they have. It's a problem that gets solved that way. So would you rather them just pay it as a dividend instead? If it's valuations like this, 14 times sales?
1: I'd rather they use it to buy back the stock instead of paying out the dividend. I mean, I'd rather they pile up cash and do things like that if they had someone who was good at capital allocation. But absent that, I don't have a problem with this. And it's not a problem for a shareholder. An investor normally because there's nothing stopping you from selling the stock you're not forced into the stock so I mean if it's not like having some trust or something so I can always sell the stock if it gets too expensive so if it gets to a point where the free cash flow yield is not attractive enough so I don't like the buybacks then you should sell the stock you should probably not be in a stock saying I don't like that they're buying back stock and yet you aren't willing to sell out of the stock in this case you might say I'll sell out so like I like FICO when it was at you know whatever it was at at 10 times free cash flow and um and buying back a ton of stock and now it's um it says that it's at 24 times free cash flow i guess it's come down a bit has it yeah uh, mm-hmm. yeah okay um so what's the stock price in dollars on the shares
0: okay stock back a little yeah yeah
1: it, it was at 500 or something at one point yeah um So, again, you know, now FICO might grow a bit faster than VeriSign. I don't know. Go to the quick FS thing so we can see. I I think probably it has in recent years. Nah, it's mixed. 2%, 11%. It's actually incredibly close to VeriSign over a 10-year period. I don't know, over shorter periods. Um, So, again, pretty slow growth company, right? Even over a 10-year period, which was a cycle that was helpful to credit, about 8%. Um, Now, consumer credit is probably going to expand pretty fast in the next year or so, but I don't know about... um, whether it'll expand in general at the rate that it did over the last 10 years, though in nominal terms, I guess it would. So maybe not bad. And it is less than 10 times sales. I said, you should never pay 10 times sales or something. It's 20 times EBITDA, right? Mm -hmm. It's not cheap. If they buy back their stock, you know, it's not terrible. It's a better than 5% return. It's probably not a lot better than 10% return. It's a fairly efficient way of doing it. It's certainly a tax efficient way of doing it for shareholders who are long term shareholders. It's not an awful way of using the money. I'm okay with it. I don't think it'll make give you much worse returns. But also, I want to warn: these are companies like Fair, uh, FICO, and Verisign. I'm not saying that Twitter should be buying back their stock. Mm-hmm. Twitter should be focused on generating some free cash flow at first. You know, um, it's okay to buy back your stock with a business that has pretty much total durability and generates free cash flow, right? So, like, these are wide moat companies, Verisign, uh, FICO, but also companies like when we've talked about the ad agencies and things like that, they may not be able to grow over time that well, and so there's prices they shouldn't pay, but you are generally buying back something that's pretty durable. You're not worrying about, should I buy back stock at Peloton or something? Is this a fad or is this something that really will last? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah.
0: So let's jump into uh, talking a little bit about the yield curve. I'm kind of curious how you think about it as it relates to um, investing in bank stocks.
1: Three month, 10 year. Yeah. Um, I got the 10 to 10 to. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the one that there'd been research on and that I think makes the most sense, but it doesn't really matter what points in the yield curve is three month and 10 year. It's yeah. like
0: I knew that. That's why I added it. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, um, that's what the Fed uses as well. I mean, that's what Jay Powell they, is quoted.
1: Uh, does he? Yeah. Yeah, they always do 10 year in two, but whatever. I mean, often they're not radically different. Um, sometimes they're a little different. And uh, I don't know why you would use that because generally at least banks and stuff, it's not. Um, and to be fair, like 10 years, just a convenient number. Mm-hmm. should it be seven year three month i mean that's not like exactly what they test out but if we looked at lots of banks would that be more accurate that their money's closer to three month money in terms of rates is are their loans really closer to seven year than 10 year maybe you know it's in that neighborhood so what is it exactly it doesn't matter what the five or the 10 or whatever is that but they're convenient numbers to use i see no reason to use two instead of three month but the market always used 210 right
0: yep that's the, that's one. So the spread that's that they we have to focus on for two uh-huh
1: so I feel I mean, like that's more bond traders and things. You know, that's why we're hearing about it. But I don't know. But maybe bankers,
0: that's what they would tell you too. So how do you typically think about the yield curve then? I guess when it comes, this is something obviously we can't control. Um, but I guess you can't control anything yet. Well, it's widened out
1: of the things that I would look at uh, considerably. It's actually not particularly flat. Uh, it's about 3%, right, on the 10-year. And it's about 1%, a little bit less, or it, depends, it moves every day, on three months that I've looked at
0: um so it, i'd say yeah how does the yield curve then um work into the banking business for that's those a good that question this is a d- debate
1: um the big thing that you'll find if you look up articles online is that it predicts recessions and this is, gets into correlation and causation all that why does it predict recessions is the market predicting recessions ahead of time by doing this um and so when we're talking about inversions different parts of the yield curve, which is just, we're plotting here, what the yield is, well, here we're just the spread, but what we'd normally be doing is looking at a curve of rates and usually there's a premium paid. So that is you get higher yields as you go um, further out because people are presumably uh, market participants are not willing to lend out for longer periods of time is the theory without um, a higher returns on
0: that, mm-hmm. you know, so a healthy one looks like it slopes, right? You get paid less for shorter term money is, than longer term money.
1: Right. But this is one of the fascinating things. I'm not sure that's been true. You know, I've looked at things from all the way through the um, 2000 years ago to today. I'm not sure that's always true, that that actually happens. There might be other reasons why that's happening in modern uh, economies and why we're so obsessed with that. Certainly the, the inversions and stuff is caused by um, central banks. So normally what happens if you look at the history of economies without central banks is you don't get inversions uh, so much. What happens because people can't predict there's going to be a seizure uh, of liquidity. What happens is that the long-term rates are much more predictable. And then occasionally short-term rates spike, short-term call money, call money spikes above long-term money, the economy seizes up. So it's a, a like a panic a liquidity shortage. And that's common. These are induced by a... Uh, a central bank, and as a result of a central bank intentionally and publicly causing a uh, the same effect, it's they're trying to do it very gently, but they're trying to cause the same effect that you would have it when um, call money would spike above long-term rates. Um, that as a result, you have this yield curve that you can follow because people know what's happening ahead of
0: time, and it's communicated. And this is done to gently cause the same effect. I think it would be good to explain. I mean, it basically just puts a wrench in the banking business model as well, right? Well, the, that, is the model of lending money, because if you're right, t- if you're paying on your deposits 3% and then it's inverted and you're going to lend it out at, you know, let's say 2% or whatever the right. number is, that business model doesn't work for banks. Right. So, so that's why it kind of slows things down. Right. right. Let's take the three and one. So let's
1: say that a bank could borrow at around th- the three month treasury. Um, type yield and uh lend at the uh 10 year now of course the actual numbers are gonna be higher in both cases you know there could be a spread on top of that for um that the bank will have to pay and that they'll be able to charge on top of what a risk-free government um security would be but same idea let's say the relationship holds the same over time so if that was true then you have about a two percent uh um net interest margin there, right, and then the cost of running the bank and everything might be around one percent or something if you had an efficient bank and uh, as a result, then you would have about a one percent return on your assets you'd leverage that about ten times you get a return equity of ten percent return equity of ten percent is competitive with returns in the economy for other things. you kind of justify your cost of capital, your stock performs in line with the s and p that kind of thing so you see there's a model that can work from that if you instead have a number like what you see with the 210 there which is like half a percent it doesn't make sense it costs more than half a percent to run a bank so bringing any additional deposits that you could only make a half a percent more wouldn't really make sense and uh you would stop lending and so at some point uh not only would you stop lending but you wouldn't even try to be attracting deposits and stuff is my point and of course some of these banks are actually going out and buying securities which can make this even more uh immediate uh than trying to do other things with their deposits now banks like everyone else are thinking long term and they're thinking well just because I can't bring in money today and make a profit at you know whatever we see there in uh, the middle of 2019 right something you see
0: yeah, right negative. that doesn't
1: mean that they say okay well I won't do it then I'm going to turn away all the money I'm not going to take anything in I'm going to stop making loans hurt their relationships right because they figure that in the future there will still be a premium assigned to um borrowing short and lending long right they still think that that will be profitable on average and yield curve inversions don't normally last that long so obviously if people thought a yield curve inversion was going to last indefinitely then banks should basically not see a point in being in business and uh the whole system should start to um you know, shut in on itself that way. But the same idea is true of all sorts of things in economics, right? So if we all look at it and say, okay, inflation's 8% or something, if we think that inflation will always be 8%, then that would radically change everyone's behavior. The only reason why things are the way that they are is they're like, okay, inflation might be 8% now, Mm -hmm. but it's going to be very different next year, the year after that, the year after that. On average, for the long term, we don't have an expectation that inflation will always be this high. If it you did have that expectation, it would make a lot more sense to do all sorts of things that are very strange and different, including taking all your money out of cash type things and trying to put it all into hard assets, Mm -hmm. right? House, gold. Yeah, and things like and you know, and things that aren't taxed because there's also huge issues with that because if you're the way that taxes work in the United States and stuff is they're not adjusted for inflation that well. So as a result, you need to get out of things like that and into things that defer it. And so harder assets, real assets, things that don't have to um Pay taxes and things for long periods in the future so basically like holding long-term things like that um and that's what you would do if you really believe that that kind of inflation will last forever you also would be like demanding raises that are pretty large now you you try to pull forward all your spending right things like that same ideas apply here momentary inversions and things like that may not worry people so maybe banks were saying back then it's transitory inversion, right? Transitory <laughs> yeah. now.
0: Uh-huh. Um, they were, you know, people were talking about this one that happened. It was inverted for like a day, maybe two days. That was in the middle of the whole. Uh, uh, it was pretty
1: early in the Ukraine war, right? Russia-Ukraine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and within Inflation like a couple weeks like later, it was higher. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, also these things, they <laughs> have to adjust. I mean, the the point is that they're two different um rates that you're comparing and so movements in one that are really extreme so i I don't know what they were but for instance because we only have the spread here but 210 let's say that two has to respond very dramatically to your To what the Fed is expected to do over the full cycle of rate rate because it's about they line up uh, about right from the point that that's happening in early in late 2021 or so. Um, I guess it happened a little bit earlier in 2021. But the really steep part that you're seeing there happens at the very end of 2021 and into 2022. At that point, two year might be the whole reason for there being a. A. There being a very small spread is that it's moving very rapidly as people are betting that the the Fed will raise rates faster than people think, you know, Mm -hmm. and that greatly affects things. Because if you thought the Fed was going to pay nearly 0% for most of the life of that uh, security, and then suddenly you think, what if you start thinking they're going to raise rates by 50 basis points at a time and they're going to start early in the life of that security? Then midway through, people could be getting 2%. um, you know, from the Fed, why do they need a two-year uh, Treasury that that uh, yields um, less than what the Fed's paying now? So obviously, you'd expect big losses in it, and that's what's happened, right? So they're huge. I mean, we we talk about the stock market, but they're huge losses in bonds. Bonds are having mm-hmm. much worse year than um, not worse in percentage terms, but in terms of total return, um, bonds are having their worst in what thirty, forty years, something in that neighborhood. It's a you know. And some are particularly bad, like investment grade bonds, right? Because it's not just the treasuries that we're seeing here, but also then you have spreads widening out and all that. So if you had a portfolio that consisted of all bonds and all stocks, you haven't done any better, really, you haven't gotten any diversification from that than if you did one or the other. It really hasn't helped you. So you can see that's a dramatic amount of, um, in that case, uh, flattening of the curve, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But you also see a divergence there from the two measures that we're using. Yeah. So, yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, and there's an even bigger divergence, which I keep reminding people in terms of mortgages and stuff. And that's when I talk about banks, but you know, a lot of banks make mortgage loans or buy mortgages. And um, uh, people always talk to me and they're like, well, here's the spread on the US Treasury things. But remember, they're they're not just like dealing in US Treasuries here. The, the, um, like mortgages are at five, uh, six. Yeah, so, so mortgages are probably at, let's see, um, what is it, maybe 13-year high, something like that? Like, it's even more so than all the other things that we're talking about here. Treasury y- mortgage yields are higher now versus certain treasuries than, than they would have been at any point in the last 10 years or so, because it's not like that's been particularly narrow. If that was particularly narrow, and it was, well, I shouldn't say it was particularly narrow, but mortgage yields were really poor in the middle of uh, COVID, yeah, not the middle, mm-hmm. but early COVID. Um alarmingly so. And then that becomes how do you make those, how do you make loans? You, you have to find something to do. You could buy securities, um, you could make mortgage loans, you can make commercial industrial loans, you can make energy loans, whatever the different banks do. But it's the actual, um, the actual yields that they get on those loans that matters. And so, uh, you know, um, mortgages have gone up quite a bit. We don't know the rate on every kind of loan at every point. And also, this is one issue here is the deposit things. This doesn't necessarily accurately reflect deposit rates. Just because three-month or Fed funds or whatever is at a certain level does not necessarily mean that you can translate that directly into what would have to be paid for deposits and other forms of financing for a bank.
0: How do banks decide all of that? Is it based on like what the market is, what their competitors are? I mean, have they been raising deposit Yeah,
1: rates? it's kind of like when I said insurers have to decide that they believe rates are insufficient or something, so they have to raise rates. But then if you raise rates too much, then you know that you'll have a loss of some, um, you'll have some cancellations. So you probably don't want to do that because there's a cost to acquiring a customer and all that. So it's kind of that modeling kind of thing. I mean, Frost, we talk about a bunch, they would be really explicit on that because they have a lot of non-interest paying deposits and they just have um they're taking a lot of deposits and putting them into the securities so they probably do and they're not taking much um duration risk they're not they're not making very long-term loans generally so and not very long-term fixed loans so um they have much more of an idea much they're probably much more explicit about if rates rise x amount we expect y percent change in our deposits you know so like if rates go up to 100 basis points would expect this amount of deposits to flow out because if we're always going to pay less or pay nothing on our deposits then as the fed funds rate goes up then some of our deposits will flow out and as our deposits flow out that our balance sheet will shrink and we won't have the assets on the other side um you know so they'll be explicit about it other banks can't necessarily because they might also rely on a variety of different funding sources
0: do you like banks that have their deposit base like that oh yeah yeah, well, frost would be a much
1: well, no, frost would be a much much more pro, No, no, it, I mean it's very efficient. The the only reason why things like frost uh, earn such poor return, you know, this is where we said like the idea of the uh, premium for lending out longer, right? You have to believe that will exist a lot of times, and this is the debate with frost, right? Where people would say, well, but it's never going to go back to that. Like what, if re- funds, right? Yeah, if rates will be zero forever, then what does it matter that if frost? has historically paid less than others for the same amount of money. Mm-hmm. So for instance, if you took Frost, we we wrote up some different banks. If you took Frost and you took Wells Fargo, Wells Fargo had a bunch of like non-interest, um, uh, like fees and things that brought in more money and whatever. But if you compared certain things about the banks, historically at higher interest rates, um, uh, meaning n- let's ignore the steepness and stuff. Let's just push all rates theoretically up at the same um uh the same amount right let's just move the entire yield curve up without saying whether it's getting steeper or flatter uh if we do that then frost will be making more money because part of the efficiency of their bank is based on attracting money at low rates Mm -hmm. relative to what they can lend out at it so they're not just paying more on their deposits right but see in theory if you had if you always expected rates to be really low let's say you always expect like the the period we've had since the financial crisis to be what it'll be forever right well you'd build your bank differently you'd say actually i'm going to be super efficient i'm going to be like an internet bank i'm going to be all these things that are super efficient in terms of not having branches not providing a lot of services whatever and then i'm going to offer higher rates and maybe advertising things i like had to attract people in because actually if if rates are nearly zero right and I'm paying 1%, people will come to me. Yeah, you're buying that business. Even though it's only 1%, right? Yeah. Versus uh, of my assets, it's a very small amount. Whereas that same advantage at a different um, interest rate level won't be as impressive. If if rates are, let's go back to like the 1990s and stuff. If you could get 6% or 7% on your money in a bank, um, for me, but only 5 from the person down the street, the bank down the street, Um, will that have the same effect on you as zero and one? Probably not. And then they can attract more of a mix of non-interest and things like that by providing other services. But again, it's a long term thing. You can't decide just with the cycle. It's not like being a trader. You can't decide, okay, I'm going to remake my bank now to be focused on, um, Being oriented towards service and lower interest expenses and a certain customer base. Like the reason why frost is organized the way it is, is because of things that the bank does that other banks don't do. And because of who is the deposit base. And who's attracted there, right? And then other banks might have a real focus on like lending and skill in that. And then they have to attract deposits of different kinds over time to mix in with that better where they don't have a natural base of those deposits. And so you can't change these things overnight one way or the other. You can't say that, oh, it's a good thing now to be into um, trying to pay higher rates, you know, having efficiency on the rate side of it or having efficiency on the other side of it um, in terms of operating expenses you are the bank that you are it's not something that you can change that quickly and so you have to try to take the approach that over entire cycles will work out and that was always my point about frost is that look it was earning 10 percent or whatever in an environment that's not set up right for that bank that bank would do better it could do 20 percent or something in a world that had very different rates much higher rates but that's not true for all banks And I think that's something that people may not have appreciated about that particular bank is that looking at other banks, they'd say, oh, they're doing pretty well, but their model actually made a lot more sense
0: for the period we were in. So it isn't as big a problem. So you basically, with Frost, your argument was it's a good enough bank now, and if rates normalize, it could be a really great bank based on?
1: Based on the price it's at at the time,
0: not the price it's at
1: now. When I was... What 40 dollars and stuff, and is one hundred twenty-five. We can look at the quick FS to give some idea of what I mean with frost. Um. So if you look, you can see the return equity there. So in the early two thousands, return equity was uh was let's see eighteen percent or something. And the banks become much more efficient in certain ways in non-operate uh, non-interest expense, so operating type expenses and things has become much more efficient over those years. Is actually. Um, theoretically would be capable in the same industry environment of earning more. But you see there's the big decline there at the end of the um, boom that, that ends with the housing boom, that ends with rates at, uh, with uh, returns on equity of like 10% or something and below, or around 10%, on average 10% for a decade or so. And then they jump up a little bit, but again, you know, that's the feds raising rates at that little
0: mm-hmm. point there. Or yeah, rates that was are in 2018, and yeah. then they basically, they went down to zero. Yeah, so it, it just that
1: return equity, if you're looking at this on the video, It's giving you an idea that as rates are low, returns on equity are low, as rates are high, returns on equity are high. But the bank's now at 2.2 times book, price to book. When it was at like closer to one times book, then paying for a 10% type return, you know, even 1.25 times book, let's say. That kind of return is just giving you the option that if rates go up, you might make a lot more money. But even if they don't, you'll make about what you would in the stock market generally or not worse. So that was my point back five years ago or so. Um, and you can see that with loan to deposits, right? Look how low loans to deposits are. Very low. Right, and so that's where the securities thing does come in. Because we were talking about like, well, the treasury thing. So Frost, they they don't really buy treasuries, but they're gonna buy um, Texas uh, uh, obligations, which are gonna be pretty similar to, to the rates that you see on treasuries. And so if they have a lot of deposits and don't have loans that they can make, they could still make more money if the if the yields are higher and that would make a big difference because they have the money either way. Right. So like half their balance sheet or something is securities. I mean, in this case is what it would say, 60 percent of the balance sheet is securities. And that immediately goes up. It's immediately going to adjust when they buy um, buy securities that yield more. So, you know, I mean, they're they're not buying mortgages uh, so much, but if you imagine that, imagine that, imagine that um, at the end of last year, they were buying things yielding 3% and now they're buying things yielding five and a half. It's that kind of thing, right? And it's also, why I talked about that with Progressive because Progressive was an insurer that when we wrote about it and stuff was literally going out and buying like two year treasuries, right? And they keep doing that. And so on average, they might be, you know, a year or something because they bought two years now and, and some of them are aging and and whatever. But that's literally the kind of thing they were doing. They were extremely short. And so that would compare to like a Geico or something, which is buying all these equities. So that has a big effect because those yields that have at times been close to zero. And now they'll presumably be, you know, several percent. I mean, when we're talking about it now, we're talking about things that are... um you know, say three months or something, right? So three months we said was like 1%. Mm-hmm. But if the Fed eventually gets to 3.5%, somewhere in that neighborhood, 3 to 4%, right? Well, why would um,
0: very short-term treasuries be less than that, right? So do you think then it's a good time to be looking at banks because rates are going higher where the return on equity, uh, you know, today could be a 10%? Depends on Depends on the
1: bank, depends on the bank. And depends on what they're going to change in the future, so Frost is a lot more expensive now, so that's the problem right So now you're paying what twenty times earnings you're paying the same sort of rates that you would pay for uh the stock market generally. so why do I want to do that? There's some reasons why still this is a bank that almost never earned less than ten percent like in consecutive years it just hasn't it's any year that it's earned less than ten percent the next year it's earned more If you do like a three year average, mm-hmm. it's always earning ten percent. You know, never losing money and earning 10% all the time is actually better than a lot
0: of stocks do, than the vast majority of stocks do. Even in like the worst interest rate environment for them? Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, Do you think that 20% or that 19 to 20 times multiple could actually look to be cheap if rates start to rise more? I think it could be cheap versus the stock market. It's probably about the same and they have a little bit more
1: favorable future than the overall stock market does. But I don't know that it's, um, it depends. You know, I don't know how long it'll last, right? We don't know how long higher rates will last without causing recessions and things like that. The, the main thing why people would be hesitant to buy banks is there's a general perception that you should avoid banks heading into yield curve inversion and, and
0: recession, obviously. Yeah. So is that like you're almost getting squeezed on both sides where, okay, rates are rising now, but now we're in a recession and. There's more competition to make loans. We're in a recession, so maybe loan demand's not there. How do banks sort of combat that?
1: Well, a few things. One, I'm not sure that loan demand won't be there. Um, To be honest, I think that uh, it's possible there could be a lot of loan demand. Uh, There wasn't a lot of loan demand in a boom. You had a boom without a lot of loan demand Mm -hmm. at times, depending on what things we're talking about. And I think you might have some strong loan demand in some categories uh, in a bust, um people built up a lot of savings during COVID and stuff as that disappears as their real wages get bad right now that might mean a lot of borrowing credit cards Mm -hmm. and stuff now we're looking at a bunch of banks that don't do credit card stuff but you know it might be a good credit card um growth period during a period that's supposedly yield curve inversion um recession all those sorts of things uh let's take housing, right? Yeah. So housing, you could say, oh, housing prices are gonna come down, this is terrible, whatever. People are borrowing very, very little versus the value of their homes. People are comparing it to like 2007 or something, you know? People were levered up like two times, two and a half times more then. It's such a small, um, it's very different now. Like for instance, the stock market accounts for a larger part of people's wealth than it did in the financial crisis. On the other hand, yes, even if home prices are very unaffordable and very expensive Mm -hmm. and all that, but they're not levered up; they're they're actually paid off uh, to a much greater extent than they have been in other times. Same thing with these banks. Like, okay, so what's the future for this bank, and and all of that? Um, isn't this trend negative for them? You know, say frost or whatever, like a recession, all that. Maybe, but you're not exactly pushing yourself to the limit when forty percent loans
0: to deposits, right? Mm-hmm. No, definitely not. Yeah, lots of lots of room there. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and I feel, the same, level I feel the same way when people talk about, like, demand, oh, won't there be demand destruction at, uh, you know, airlines or whatever if gas prices go too high or, like, people eat out less or whatever. At this point, there's not enough supply for some of these things. Like, what if, um, you know, people are talking about things about, like, won't car prices cause demand to go down? Well, you'd h- hope so. Yeah. Because they're selling all the cars that they have right now. So, like they don't want more demand. Even the people selling these things don't don't necessarily want more demand. What they want is more supply. They I want mean, more it, balance. That's
0: what you're seeing in the housing market right now. Right,
1: right. So even when they talk about rates going up, lowering demand, which it will, um, the supply-demand situation is not so uh, even. So eventually it, it will uh, have an effect, right? So these higher rates over time will have a major effect. Okay. I was just saying, um, when asked about this at the end of last year, beginning of this year, that I thought it was gonna be a very good year for travel and big spending and all those things. All I mean by that is uh, I'm sure some of the things people are talking about will have an effect on demand. I just think that demand is so strong versus supply in those industries that it that's not really a negative. Like saying, okay, so the demand for new cars will go down. Okay, but supply isn't keeping up with demand in many cases. So that's not really going to affect final
0: sales. Yeah. I mean, there's money's more expensive now, but that hasn't really even affected the price of homes. They haven't really corrected the activity, mortgage activity is down, but right. it so hasn't affected valuation levels of homes yet.
1: Right. So we talked about things like investors' title insurance. Um, they reported their quarter and it showed kind of what I was been expecting, which is that we're seeing a big change in refinancing activity, but very little changes in um, in purchases, right? So, um, and, and I think that obviously makes sense and that no one's going to refinance their home. Higher rates. Yeah, with rates being higher and that mortgages will stay out longer, that the life of the mortgage will be longer, which is part of the issue that you won't have it um, paid off as quickly. would. Um, you know, whether that's good or bad um, depends on what you were looking for as an owner of uh, as a holder of that mortgage. But that is a major factor that I think people overlook is that the eventual life of a mortgage is going to depend in large part on interest rates. If interest rates are falling over the entire period where you have a uh, since you've originated the mortgage and obviously the mortgage isn't going to stay out that long. Because people are going to refinance. refinance yeah. If the reverse is true and we have 40 years of rising rates, then mortgages <laughs> would be End up aging uh, quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's just totally different depending on that. And that just changes things in terms of risks for a title insurance company, in terms of risks for all sorts of things. And, but yeah, obviously refinancing stuff plummets. Um, although at some point there may be some refinancing eventually of just in terms of just people, uh, uh, taking money out of their homes. If we do get a recession and things like that, eventually, if they have so much equity
0: in the homes, then sometimes people may do that just to spend, just mm-hmm. like they borrow on credit cards and stuff like that. We met someone in Omaha that lives in a different country and, uh, he said his, uh, 30 year mortgage is 50 basis points.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And home prices are not that bad in the U.S. compared to some other developed countries, which are much more bubble-like and have been for a while. Um, so, uh, I, I just think that the that's a supply-demand issue, and we'll see. You know, they are building a bunch of different. They, they, so so far, they've been better at building um, apartments than uh, single-family homes, but we'll
0: see if that changes. Mm. Um, So we could look at some of the uh, bank stocks that we looked at last year, Uh, Exos Financial. uh, This was we did went over like eight overlooked uh, bank stocks. uh, I don't think access is overlooked. Okay, well, um, (laughs) yeah, looking at the beta and share turnover, uh, we talked about it it was was at 23 bucks. It was
1: Bank of Internet was you know, B-O-F-I was the name of the that they changed it. Um, Yeah, B-O-F-I Holdings. And I talked a little bit about it. It's basically like, a, it's effectively like a thrift, but on online, uh, I think they might be getting to other sorts of things. Uh, I don't know enough about that.
0: So do you want to explain the thrift business because like loans to deposits look different than other traditional banking businesses for thrift? Yeah, because
1: that's usually that they don't have, a, they're not a business bank, um, or, or even have a customer deposit that way. Um, they are, uh, they, um, so they aren't doing things like CNI lending and stuff like that. And so when we're talking about the borrowing short lending long, that's kind of the issue that thrifts face, um, is what they're borrowing very short and lending very long. They don't have a sufficient base of, um, of, uh, deposits that would allow them to make loans throughout a cycle without any, uh, they're, they're more market-based. They're more purely commoditized. Yeah. Because borrowers, you know, say th- that you're going to be financing uh, apartment or something like that, apart- apartment building, um, are going to be very focused on the rates that they're paying. And then on the other hand, you have um, borrowers, which are, uh, I mean, um, depositors, which are also going to be very focused on the market rates because they don't have a real relationship with you. And you can see that in how this company advertises and all those sorts of things, which is different from like we said, CNI lending and stuff like that. There's other things, to, and we're private banking, like you said, but there's other
0: purposes to the relationship. Is there, like when you're looking at banks and their type of deposits, the type of loans they're making, is there one in general that you typically prefer? No. So basically, then what are you looking for when you're looking uh, and analyzing a bank then? I'm trying to figure out how it works why it works whether it's a good business that way
1: um most of the banks will think that the other ways you can make money in banking is not a good idea right so like um if a company's very focused on lending and all that sort of uh being very efficient in lending and all that then they think that having low cost deposits and strong relationships uh isn't a way to success And vice versa, those that are able to have those relationships and to have fairly low and stable deposit costs um, don't like the commoditized nature of it that other banks have. Uh, You know, it works either way. But that's true, by the way, that's true in almost every industry. Um, People always talk about being like the low cost leader and all all that kind of stuff. Um, you can be a, the low cost leader in something, but you can also be a leader in differentiating yourself in different ways. Mm-hmm. Differentiation is not always a good idea. Uh, in fact, people always talk about it as, as it, if it is, but actually it's not. In some categories, by far the best position to have is not to be differentiated, just to say we have the lowest price. Geico and Progressive have some of the best returns in um, auto insurance. And they do it not by saying that we're different from anybody else. They do it by saying auto insurance is a commodity. We save you more, call us, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's true for lots of different things, Um, food categories, things like that. So you can go either way on that. And either one will work, but a middle ground doesn't work as well. So having the absolute lowest price on something that everyone wants and everyone thinks of as a commodity is a great idea but doing the same thing in a different category might not work as well. So like, if you can't beat Budweiser in beers on that basis that we just said of saying it's a commodity, if you can't do that, then you gotta say, go completely the opposite direction and say that we're nothing like, uh, we're a totally different category than mm-hmm. even that kind of beer and stuff. And then you can have success that way by differentiating yourself, because you're never gonna be able to get your costs down to where they are. Same thing, I think it would be hard to compete on a commodity basis with a lot of banks, um, but it's not hard if you build a relationship there um, and offer other services. Relationship with the depositors? Mm-hmm. We've talked about this before. No, uh, both depositors both. And, and
0: borrowers. lending, yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, l- let's use some comparisons here. And you can just get this right off the numbers, get an idea. So Axos has um, too many borrowers and not enough depositors. Yeah, so
0: you can see that in the loans to deposits. Yeah. Frost has too many depositors yeah. and not enough borrowers. And theirs is more than cutting out from...
1: So this case. one has over 100% loans to deposits, which is a hint of that, while Frost has under 40%. But there's just other hints as you read all about the company and in the, the way they talk about themselves and, and all sorts of other things because of the base that they're attracting frost has a large base of businesses and some base of customers too uh, of households but a large base of businesses which are probably going to produce a lot of um, cash on hand you know and a lot of have a lot of liquidity and they aren't necessarily going to need to borrow all that much now if they were construction companies if they were developers of all sorts of things uh, even energy companies which frost has some of which helps but has less than it used to those things might want to borrow a lot right but Depending on what kind of business it is, there's a lot of small to medium sized businesses in the US um, that are very cash flow generative and do not require very large loans. Now, if you're involved in real estate, you're always going to have a bias where people want to borrow more than they want to deposit with you. Real estate uh, investors, real estate uh, construction, any of these things, it doesn't generate a lot of cash. And um, you're ba- they're basically long assets, long the actual um, buildings, land. And they're offsetting that by their relationship with you as the bank, which means they always want to borrow fixed rates, long time, and they don't want to deposit a lot with you. And so you're going to have a mismatch that way. And so that's what you end up with here. And that's why as a, com- where I was describing as like a commodity type thing. um. And then you have the reverse sometimes, like we were talking about with Ross, where you're gonna tend to generate too much in deposits and not enough to do with
0: it. But then you just go out and buy securities and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I guess if you're looking at a bank today, most banks that were, not most, but we talked about a lot that were undervalued in 2020, Mm -hmm. and they've uh, risen the the valuations of the companies. So I'm kind of curious, if you were looking at banks today with a fresh set of eyes, how would you be thinking of the current yield curve the current environment that we're in and bank stocks
1: well let's try bokf in quick fs was that bank of oklahoma yeah I just call it just calls bok financial but that's what it was originally bank of oklahoma um so there's an article about this bank in wall street journal something like that recently basically that they're uh it, and it didn't say be okay Financial. What I think it said is George Kaiser's bank or something like that because he controls the bank. But um, wh- whose background is in uh, oil and, and gas, basically. Um, so they're g- going to get bigger in energy stuff. Um, as you see here, their loans to deposits has come down. Um, they're cheaper than Frost. They haven't always had as good returns. They're more growth-focused, and um, they are, if anything, even more – oriented towards energy stuff than frost had been uh, or is you know it it had been bigger in that a few years ago um and a part of that is because where they're located right in oklahoma and all that but they've expanded to a few other states around that so that's the possibility of the sort of thing to look for because you can see that really the the states they're focused on the kind of lending they're focused on and the interest rate environment a few years ago wasn't so good right there just wasn't a lot of um, energy lending to do there is more now some others might be pulling back from doing that so you could see possibilities that you could earn better returns um, and then you see the lowest deposits that we talked about they're really low so you go okay well if you managed a year or two ago to make nine to 12 percent or something while having low loans to deposits you know um maybe in the future you could make more by lending out more and that ratio would go higher right and energy loans could be quite a profitable way to do that and um you know it has been in the past it's it's a way to make a lot of money what do interest rates look like on energy loans that's a good question um thank you jeff it it's a pretty profitable type of lending to do I would say because it's so risky
0: more more
1: risky I think it's perceived to be more risky than it is a very large amount of the losses happen in loans to the service companies Um, I think loans against producing wells that are adequately um, uh, that are analyzed properly and reasonably in terms of the the price that you expect oil to be at are not terrible um, they're not as risky as people think. It's like when we talked about far a farmer Mac and, and ranch and and um, uh, and agricultural loans and things like that. Yeah, and so the uh, same sort of thing. I think it's a little more. I think fewer people, fewer banks will do it. There's you know ten or so of them that do a lot of really big ones. Um, and I think that it's not a bad area to lend in if you're going to have to. Um. I mean, here's the thing, you know, there's a lot of banks that like make mortgage loans and stuff and and that's fine. But ultimately, why is that better than going out and buying securities? You know, what are you doing? That's making you a lot of money on that. That's a, a lot of banks I look at. I, that's my problem. I would say, honestly, if you over a period of many decades, now, you're a bank, so you have to do this. You have to kind of serve your community and stuff. But mm-hmm. let's just say that there's no issue of that in terms of the organization and what it thought it should be doing. Its pure purpose was to exist to make a profit for shareholders. Okay, if you took the same amount of risk in terms of how many years out you the, your, their duration and stuff was, then your balance sheet consisted of all of like BAA bonds or something like that, corporate bonds would you have actually made more money than doing all these loans? Because when you factor in the losses and a lot of things, it's just, it's, it's not worth it. Um, And that's true. People don't like it. They complain about it when, you know, you see that half of a balance sheet of something like frost or something is in securities. But how is that really all that much better unless the bank has some specialty that it it's in? Mm -hmm. In fact, the two things that people criticize in something like frost is too many securities and too much energy lending. Mm hmm which are kind of two of the things that don't bother me um, because if they do it at the right, if if they're smart about it, energy lending, if you're doing it all the time, if you're always in that business to a certain percent of your bank um, is a thing where you could differentiate yourself in terms of your um, as being a place that has expertise in this and is in the right parts of the country and has the right clients and all of those sorts of things. You can, it's, it's, you know, um, one of those things where if you're a pretty big bank involved in energy or pretty big involved in agriculture or any whatever these things are, you can kind of carve out something that's a little less commoditized. It's not no commoditized, but, you know, it's different from making just loans on um, owner-occupied commercial real estate,
0: you know. Why do investors not like to see that where their balance sheet is mainly invested in securities is it because it see, lowers the return on the, equity yeah, returns the yields yeah. lower so the return on equity
1: is immediately lower you know they always say that right Every, they're always interested in the immediate efficiency of it mm-hmm. and that's kind of the trade-off but the hope is that at some point then you're able to lend um and make more money that way uh so i i can see both issues there i mean with With frost, I was probably more forgiving the same way that for the same reasons that they probably were, which they weren't sure if rates were going to go up at many different points. And then, you know, it's easy to forget that now. But every three years or so, there was some talk about throughout the last uh, 10, 12 years before COVID. um, Well, rates might come up. So maybe in 2013, they think, oh, they might come up in 2016. They might come up in just a few years, you know. Um, And then... When you do that, then you would have losses on your securities if you had bought them and and that had happened um, so it would turn out on that basis that it might have made just as much sense to keep money ready to lend out, keep money at the Fed and things like that. Um, obviously, lots of banks are showing losses on the on a book value basis right now because their securities have to be marked down yeah.
0: would you rather a bank earn more from cost efficiencies or from making higher interest rate type of loans? or do you think it's just a combination of both cost efficiencies yeah, yeah. we've talked about that as the cost side is the side that
1: there are banks that make a control. little more on the interest rate uh on the on the uh, rate side of it um and consistently, and we've we you know researched and then we found some examples where they're pretty consistently made more than other banks making the same kind of loans, even after adjusting for the losses. Um, realistically, I think that lower losses making the same kinds of loans is more realistic than having higher rates. Um, that's been my experience looking at most banks. That reducing your losses while charging similar amounts to for the that category of loan has been a more realistic way of having higher um, uh, rates, af- having higher um, income a- adjusted for those losses. There you see more variation over full cycle in um, loss ratios on the same, seemingly the same loans. I mean, they look the same from the outside uh, between banks. So you know, because if you look at, like, the financial crisis, you know, you look at banks that had meaningful, um, I mean, look at one that didn't do well or something. Let's put in city. Let's see. Well, we're now only out to 2012, so. Um, but what was loan loss reserves to losses? Uh, yeah, loan loss reserves to loans. So, they're running at 4, 3, you know, in the mm-hmm. early part of that period anyway. Um, making up for that. That you say, And so those aren't charge offs. And that's not a period that we're interested in, which is more like a financial crisis. But if you look at the actual charge offs, which is what matters, I'm not interested in what the um, mm-hmm. reserves are. Um, they're different enough that it, it would be hard to think that you I mean, it's just basically charging the same amount, but making better loans is usually what makes more sense. Um, and then there's other things we don't talk about, and I think the banks don't talk enough about, which is also just things in how they handle the relationship and how they can do other things to reduce the losses.
0: The only things that we've like mentioned what? is kind of
1: moving very quickly. When? Uh, Lots of communication, moving yeah. very quickly, all those sorts of things. We talked about more with CarMart. It's very important to contact people early on and to be aware of problems and to... Um, uh, all that stuff. Uh, it, it's very bad if you don't act. This is true insurance things, loans, uh, lending things. Most financial service stuff where you're taking a risk that way of, of uh, bad events happening. Um, It's important to just move fast on that and start to do things about it as opposed to something where there's a lack of communication and you learn about the problem much later after a lot of things have gone wrong and it's not possible to address them. Mm-hmm. Um, So... And very big banks sometimes have those problems. They can become pretty inefficient that way. And if you make a lot of loans, that can become a problem. I mean, we don't talk about it. efficiency as like lower losses as being more efficient, but that's part of it. So reducing your losses is a part of becoming more efficient for every dollar of capital that you have in the business. You, know? you can make more money off the same things that other banks are.
0: And how do banks do that for those that may not be as familiar? Well, a variety of the things that we just said,
1: but I, I don't, I mean, there's lots of other ways of doing it. The main thing is which categories of loans you're in. Um, then other things would be how marginal that is versus other people making the same loans. You know, um, I mean, we mentioned Citigroup because Citigroup's the don't the famous quote about um, how to behave in a, in a boom there. Um, and it, it's important to avoid certain categories of loans. Wait, what's the quote <laughs> that as long as the music's playing, you got to get up and dance. Oh, you got to dance. All right. Yeah.
0: I didn't know that's where it originated.
1: Citigroup. Yeah. Yeah. It was okay. Chuck Prince. Uh, it was a CEO of Citigroup at the time. And, um, the full quote is like when, you know, when the dries up or whatever, <laughs> sure. There'll be some complications or some, uh, mm. you know, but basically it's that, um, the music will stop at some point and we know that's going to happen, but you got to dance while While the music is playing. Yeah. So, you know, same thing as like stocks, right? We just looked at some stocks that fall into this category, but uh, vintages are very important and securities. They're very important. Loans, like the energy things in general, losses are going to be disproportionately in the years where there was really bad garbage being issued. And uh, as long as you avoid those years and don't overweight towards things in that period, you can have much better results. You know, Berkshire has that in insurance things and stuff like that. Uh, So that's very important. And so even though people had like huge losses in the 1920s or something, actually it's buying stuff in 27, 8, 9 entirely that causes that. And really in the last couple of years, same thing in um, any of these things, dot-com things. If you bought the first IPOs of the 90s, that were great internet stocks, you know, what? let's say 1996 or something. It's much worse to buy something in 1999 than 1996. And the things we just talked about, the, the upstarts and the Pelotons and mm-hmm. the whatever, these are a lot of things that you're looking at that have shorter histories, that haven't been around for as long, all of that kind of thing um, that is going to mean that it's just much more um, uh, lower quality stuff. And, you know, there's a lot of that. So I'd say fast, fast growth in a category is always difficult. Um, and then like we're saying about how marginal something is, is the big risk. It's the same thing. If we talked about movie things, any of that. If you're taking something that everyone else has turned down already, then there's a bit of a problem. So anytime they say like, we're going to build a new business somewhere, um, or in some category we haven't been in before and we're going to build it however fast. That's always the thing that's difficult. Just as it would be for a movie studio if they said we're going from not having made a movie to we're going to be doing, you know, 12 a year. Mm-hmm. The only way to do that is to take stuff that other people won't, you're taking projects that others won't take. You could do it slowly, you know. And the same thing when a bank tells you, oh, we're going to get to 500 million within this, so much time. It, you have to be taking stuff that, you know, others that have grown more slowly aren't. So So you love one-branch banks. Well, sort of. So publicly traded one-branch banks. It's kind of a tongue twister. Yeah. Um, Other things equal, I like them better, yeah, if they're growing and stuff, because of the economies of scale. Because there's tremendous economies of scale at that point. You know, economies of scale are interesting. When you look at different companies, uh, economies of scale kick in at different industries. Economies of scale kicking at different points, and it really has to do with if you 're having a specific function that your company performs so there are often at many businesses there are huge economies of scale very early in the growth of the size of the business and then much much less at great size everyone's always interested in the ones that are the giant companies you know we do tens of billions of dollars in sales yeah. and stuff, but the truth is that getting from a boss Who's doing everything to having one employee and thing and you know and then from that to having five employees in one place? Those are the economies of scale that are really really big in percentage terms. Um, and so, one branch banks tend to have uh, publicly traded ones tend to have growth that is in line or similar to other banks, uh, maybe even faster. And if they're achieving that without opening new branches, then the economies of scale that are happening are.
0: Pretty attractive. Mm -hmm. So you said something on the panel that you'd like to see management teams, um, you know, that this could be their second career. Yeah, that's something that's that's attractive when it comes to banks. Mm -hmm. Could you explain why? I mean, how you typically think about that? Sure. So the second career
1: thing, I found that, you know, the management teams I like best, this is a second career for them, um, that they were previously at some other bank, or in a slightly different industry and came over, and uh, they got a chance to develop things more along the ways that they'd always wanted. Um, In some ways it's also true with like the, the, like um, what was the book, Uh, Good to Great. And it said that, you know, more of the time actually it was an insider rather than an outsider that uh, ended up being the person that changed the company in that direction more so than like people had expected. So people would always expect that it's some famous outsider coming into a company and changing it. But that's not always the case. Sometimes it's someone who has seen what they don't like about how things are run, has ideas about it, and now is is um, like the, given the authority and everything to make those changes. And so that's the reason why I like uh, I have found, at least, that I think that having management that's a second career has been um, the category that works best for me. Um, they have some ideas about how a company should be run and all of that, and then they're able to apply it, sort of like refounding the company mm-hmm. in a way. You know, talked about that like a refounding idea. Many companies, you know, they either have the, the two things are you either have to be the founder or you sort of have to be a refounder. It's hard otherwise. Um, to have results that are a lot different than what other managers would bring to it, but of course, it doesn't mean that they're better or anything. It just means that um, if I liked what they were doing. With well, their ideas that they had, then I'd be happy with, with, um, with what they brought to it. So, and I even mentioned um, a couple of examples that are kind of more famous things, though. But um, in a sense, that's like what you have with Starbucks, McDonald's. Those are really things in which someone observed something from the outside, decided to implement it. Um, and there's actually a few others like that. So, completely copying, you know, has the same effect. That's just for whatever reason, that's something that's rarer. I guess a lot of times someone like leaves one company or one industry comes to a new one and then implements those ideas that they had at the other place more so than someone just saying, oh, I'm just going to copy everything about what that other one did. Mm-hmm. But there are some examples. Um, Southwest was blamed about that. I guess actually now there have been a couple of discount airlines that all copied the same idea in a different place, I guess, cause it's regional. So they don't feel bad that they're copying someone that they're not directly competing with. Mm-hmm. So if I do in Texas, what they had been doing in California, if I do in Ireland, what they've been doing in
0: Texas, you know, all those things, then it, you don't feel bad that you're stealing that idea that way. Yeah, taking a successful concept and bringing it to a new market. Right, but maybe you wanna- make a lot of money doing that.
1: Right, but maybe you wouldn't be willing to do that if you were copying someone who was sort of directly competing with you. Uh-huh. Costco is sure. kind of price smart. Uh, same idea, it's just a copy of that.
0: So I guess bringing it back though. So if mm-hmm. you were looking at a uh, bank stock today with the current interest rate environment, everything, I mean, what are some things that you'd be thinking through? I, I'd be very careful. I don't think you want to buy your first bank ever today. Okay. Why is that?
1: I just don't know if people are like, I mean, you have to have been thinking about what the banks would look like at different points in the interest rate cycle. And, uh, and, and in other kinds of cycles, too. I mean, there could be a recession fairly soon and all that, but that could happen at any point. Um, you know, that's that's not something that you have to worry about more in one period than another, really. It's something that should always be on your mind. But uh, I just don't think that you should buy. It, to me, it feels too much like following someone into a stock, um, kind of like a 13F type thing, mm-hmm. that you're just saying, oh, I should buy a bank stock because it's the right time to do it, or, you know, having an opinion about the macro sense of it. Um you know, it would be the same thing would be if we were talking about an oil company or something. That we'd want to still pay attention to what their costs are and where um, their reserves are and all of that, not to miss out on things. I feel like people would probably tend to want to buy the cheapest. So, like, the move has already happened? No, 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 no. Uh, I think that people would misunderstand why one bank is a lot cheaper than another. Okay. Not people who are experienced in, in investing in banks and stuff, but I'm just saying if this is, like, your first time... Picking out a bank for yourself sure. to yeah. buy and mm-hmm. or or whatever, um, then we're looking at some banks. You have a bank up there on the screen right now, which is uh, more than fifty percent cheaper on a price to book basis than Frost. So why is that? It's earning higher returns than equity. Return right on now. equities higher. Yeah, yeah. So does that make it much better? Is it a much better business? Is it a much better bank? What are the differences?
0: Why are there? Uh, These are good questions. And mm-hmm. what would you do? Go in, learn more about the bank well, to answer those questions? Well, we can look business description. It provides various community banking services in Washington. It offers various deposit products. That's a weird to money one. Market Speculative
1: one-to-four family construction. Yeah, what is...
0: Huh, interesting. Because
1: they say multifamily construction as a separate... Topic land development construction they have. and land development loans. I wonder how we don't know because we haven't looked at it. So this is Timberland Bancorp. Yeah.
0: T-S-B-K. So we would have to look up, um, founded in 1915.
1: Mm hmm. We have to look up in their 10 K and everything, the actual breakdown of the loans and what categories and, and, um, or their call report, um, uh, and what categories they're in and all that. It's just in the business description, it was more extreme, uh, Breaking out of certain kinds of loans, um, then you see uh, mostly with banks, but that's just a business description, which are sometimes very unreliable for banks. Um, let's pull up their 10k, shall we? They're a small bank, right? Yeah, uh, we're not gonna be able to figure out anyway. Let's see
0: see their loan breakdown.
1: Okay. One to four. Okay. One to four family. We're looking at 2021 right now. Yep. So it's mostly commercial.
0: Uh, of what kind? What's the first category say? Multi. Okay. So we got mortgage loans, one to four family, multifamily, commercial, construction.
1: Yeah. And the actual speculative. It was a small category that they mentioned, but they do mention it explicitly. Yeah, there's not a lot of construction loans really uh, um, that are broken out there, like the land developer and all those sorts of things, compared to other um, banks. Not really. They just broke it out more when they're describing it in the um, in the business description. So, what did they call the second commercial category?
0: See, see, commercial construction, custom and owner. Slash builder construction speculative one to four family, construction commercial construction multifamily. Construction okay, so what percentage
1: is construction, owner and builder, whatever that says. What percent
0: of the loans? Yeah, um, ten percent I believe. Kind of going off my eyes. Yeah, ten percent.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe there's more construction lending at this bank than we see it a lot. I don't know because I also don't know what the one to four family means. It has a footnote that describes it, but I'm not sure what that means. If what kind of loans those are, um, they've been coming down a lot. So you can see that they're 15% mm-hmm. in 2017. Um, so, you know, and then, then you have to look at deposits and all of that. Um, there's a variety of different issues that you'd have to try to analyze with a bank. And I think it's very hard to do by just pulling it up and looking at it that way. I think most people want to do that. I don't know how to do a snap judgment of a bank, for
0: instance. So like what are some things that you would want to find out then? Well let's look at the
1: let's look at a quick FS for it. so let's see um so what stands out i can just tell you what stands out you know that that's there's not an answer to that so some of the things that stand out is the net interest margin is very large
0: yeah in certain years
1: right so right now it we have it down at 3.2 percent or something but it was in 2019 4.7 percent 4.14 uh, you had a high return on assets throughout much of that period, although there's been high variability in the return on assets. So return assets in 2019 were 2.1, but then in 2012, it was, what level was it? 0.6. Right. Then you've also had um, fairly stable-ish um, leverage ratios that are fairly low, which can actually be a sign that they're aware that they're making uh, high-risk loans. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily that, but um, it could be. Like, um, let's put in... What's the ticker for bank OZK, the one that changed their name for Bank of the Ozarks?
0: is it OZK? No? Yeah? yeah. <laughs> okay.
1: So this is a much larger bank, also one-times book, um, has certain similarities, right? To what I was just describing, a little bit more extreme. So net interest margin had been as high as 5% or something. You've seen that most of the banks were looking at maybe 3% plus or minus 0.3%. You know, you're falling within like 2.7 to 3.3 in the recent years, something in that neighborhood about 3%. So this bank also very low leverage, right? So like their leverage, so we have here, when I say leverage, earning assets to equity or assets to equity. You know, they have both of them here on QuickFS. You see that they're there would normally at a bank, uh, it changes all the time, but I would say in the last 10 years or so, a reasonable one might be rule of thumb would be 10 times. That's not a bad. Number to think of because it's just very convenient in your mind to do that. So, a 1% return on assets, you could get like a 10% return on equity, something like that. You know, that's the leverage that we're talking about here. Here, we're talking about about half of that. And in fact, it's been low throughout the whole period. And uh, return on equity has been strong, usually. And that's because return on assets have been very high. So, this is one of those interesting things. Most people would say, I don't know if exactly most people would say this, but many people would say, well, this is good. You're earning a really high return on your assets and you're using less leverage. Less leverage means lower risk, Mm -hmm. right? But does less leverage mean lower risk or does less leverage mean that the underlying asset is riskier? It depends. Both uh, have their, uh, both can be risky. So you tend to see that extremely high leverage ratios in any category, insurance, investing, uh, banking, extremely high leverage applied to very safe assets does result in blowing up. That's the long-term capital management sort of blow up. They were very, very safe um, trades, basically, that they were doing that they leveraged up in an incredibly high level and would have been manageable if not for a high amounts of leverage. The other thing that you see is sort of risky loans, risky um, trades, however you want to put it, that people are doing that can't take a lot of leverage. And sometimes that's also an issue. And so you have to look out for that. And then it's a question of how they generate the returns that they do. Here we can see that probably, in fact, we know that they have to have very high um, rates on their loans. Riskier loans. Well, Presumably. higher higher rates. I mean, they're doing like buildings well, and stuff like that. Right? Okay. But is a loan to NACO high risk? I would say no. Okay. Um, you know, like I, I don't know, was NACO borrowing? This is so, NAC Coal, you know, it, it wasn't guaranteed by NACO. So, it is certainly higher risk. But was a company like that borrowing at a very different rate than Carvana? I don't know. I'd have to look it up exactly. Right. But so there sometimes can be higher. I'm not saying that people might have for, for no really logical reason from a uh, perspective for, um, le- for lending when you really think about it, it might've been more popular to do certain kinds of lending than others. And there might've been not enough lending and energy things, certainly coal. Others might've shied away from that because of, um, carbon and uh, because of societal issues there that they do wanna be criticized about it or promises that they made to reduce that or whatever. Um, and then in other things it might be more popular to make a loan in some other category. And so would it? do you maybe make a loan for solar that you don't make for coal that actually isn't any safer but that you have a, a lower yield on the solar than the coal? Maybe. Um, they would probably say that they focus on certain categories of loans that others avoid and that they uh structure things and are in particular um pieces of the capital structure that are more um attractive right and that might be true you know there there's certainly certain kinds of loans that have much higher rates than others um if all you were doing is like providing bridge financing or something, let's imagine that there was a bank that that's all they did. They'd have higher rates, uh, you know, adjusted for their risk than other kinds of banks. But I don't know how you would do that because you'd have to like, be able to come up with money on a moment's notice all the time and have a lot of relationships with people to do that. So what is the business description of a bank goes
0: Provides various retail and commercial banking services. The company accepts various deposit products, including non-interest bearing checking interest Transaction, money yeah. market, individual retirement. Excellent. Yeah.
1: Uh, so, this is the problem with most of them. Most all the banks have the same business description. It's not helpful what
0: they say. You know what I've never liked about this bank? What? You go to the income statement, you look at their shares outstanding. It and in 20. 2012, 70 million. And they're now at 130 million. Yeah, I mean, it's
1: almost diluted. People ask a lot about about it because there are a few things they changed their regular thing, they changed their name. Also, they have branches. Have you been to? I mean, I've I've seen them. Okay, yeah. So I, I would go to a few places that are next to a branch that they had, and um, you know, it's just it's, yeah, they're definitely um, more visible and and um than a lot of other banks, which is, it's fine. I mean, if that's what the business model is, um, that they're trying to attract a lot of attention. um, Generally when they open a branch in that area and for people to come in not knowing anything about the bank. um,
0: It's a good tell though, like, or rule of thumb, I guess you could say things that stick out of the assets to equity um, being lower and seeing that they're still generating a pretty high return on equity.
1: Yeah, and that's because you have a high return on assets. I always say focus on the return on assets, not the return on equity. I mean, the return on equity is what you'll get over time if you apply a certain leverage ratio to it, but you shouldn't necessarily assume that the leverage ratio will be the same all the time. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't run it the, that way, you know, and I don't think that, like, uh, Berkshire would run an insurance company that way or something. You probably want to vary your amount of leverage over time and try to target more of the same sort of asset, Um you know, there's some effect on assets in that if you are doing more at scale, then you still would have better return on assets, but it shows up more in the return on equity. So, you know, a a 1% to 2% return on assets should translate into a 10 to 20% return on equity. But if you look, what's the, so let's look at their long-term return on equity from this bank. So some of the appealing things about it, right, is so their long-term return, 10-year return is 13%, which is not radically different than some banks that are have much, have double the leverage and half the return on assets, or not half. I mean, let's put it this way. Their banks, not a lot, but their banks that have a 1.5% return on assets and a 10 to 1 leverage. So they're doing better mm-hmm. than bank OZK. Um, now they're not reinvesting 100%. So that may be part of the other attraction that this bank has had over time for people is that um the actual growth in earnings per share and certainly in the uh overall size of the bank and everything's really impressive so if we look what's their yeah i mean their their eps went from a dollar to 440 dollar 10 to 440 quadrupled in 10 years other banks aren't gonna that i was just talking about aren't gonna have that because they're going to be taking at least a third of their earnings Mm -hmm. and paying it out So you're going to see banks that have 15 to 20 percent returns on equity. There are some of those, but their return, their growth rate is still only be 10 to 12 percent. It's not going to be as high as that. Your growth rate isn't going to equal um, your return on equity. Whereas here it can, and in fact it can exceed it if you're issuing equity, as you saw. So that's the big difference there. Um, Like I said, the net interest margin thing is is very high. So and that's pretty impressive considering also how like low interest rates have been and all that, that Mm -hmm. a significant portion of that is some perceived, um, it doesn't just have to be risk. I mean, it could be that it's, you're difficult to serve um, customer, you know, but what we're saying is it's very different from a government type. um, Well, we could go to Frost and get an idea. So Frost has had lower returns on equity than this bank, 10.2 versus 13%. And then there there is 2.8, is their 10-year median net Mm -hmm. interest margin. So, it's, it's um you know, significantly lower. But then you look at their leverage, their leverage is higher.
0: Yeah. They've been leveraged close to times. 10, 10 times. And get a 10% return on equity. Yeah. Which makes sense Return on assets,
1: 1%. Mm-hmm. And then you have your big banks, which have much more messy financial results lately. But what are the ones people like a lot? JP Morgan probably is the favorite. Yeah. Berkshire is a big Bank of America holder, right? Um, so JP Morgan, you can see 2.6% net interest margin. Uh, earning assets are now about at the level that we were talking about with um, with like Frost, uh, though they had started the period lower. Uh, it's a little complicated. You have to read their annual report. They have a bunch of different businesses and some of them are better than others. You know, um, like they're in investment banking, mm-hmm. which isn't my favorite business in the world. Trading. Yeah. things sort of things like that. Um, and then they're in some big like corporate lending type things and then they're just other things that are much more comparable to the other banks we've looked at that are smaller scale what do you think buffett likes about bank of america well bank of america has very attractive um low cost deposits and a lot of them per branch and everything so when you take in the efficiencies that they have it's very frost like that way i'm not saying that that's what their future will be and everything but if you had to compare if you had to compare frost to giant banks the two that make the most sense to compare them to would be bank of america and um wells fargo probably they're the two that are most similar in some respects.
0: Um, Buffett's been an investor for some time, right?
1: Yeah, it was very cheap too. Mm-hmm. right? We're up at book value now, yeah. and that's after a really big recovery from where it was before. Mm-hmm. So he got in at a very good price that way. Um, I find the very large banks are difficult to analyze, but you can see, again, the loans to deposit is low here. Um net interest margin is low, the bank hasn't been growing, you know, for a while. So you've had gains in some efficiency stuff, but mainly a gain in terms of uh, the price to book ratio, mm-hmm. right? But then you've also had um, pretty, yeah, pretty like how, well, I guess the it, the pandemic changed things, but it, it had historically, it hadn't paid a dividend during the, um, or had paid like no, I don't remember if it actually went to zero, but pretty much during the financial crisis. But coming out of that, you know, where we're looking at here the last eight years or whatever, the increases in the dividend each year are pretty big. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty meaningful. You're gonna get a lot more earnings, uh, a lot more of your return than in many stocks comes from dividends in banks, which is one of the drawbacks, right? From a tax efficiency perspective, you're gonna have to take some dividend income, which is not what we're looking for, but that's what you're gonna end up with because banks don't normally um just focus on buying back
0: their stock or something like that share count has gone down as well yeah from 10.8 billion to 8.5 billion in- yeah but let's go to cash flow
1: um did they have that there for them yeah so how much have they paid out for dividends versus buybacks okay so it's not too bad that bank of america has definitely been doing a lot more maybe it's even better you know from that perspective that they had a dividend that was so low Mm -hmm. that's allowed them to buy back so much stock Mm -hmm. because if you look their their buybacks in some periods are many times what their dividends were yeah so that's probably another thing that would be attractive to Buffett. I mean, it'd be attractive to me. I wish I could convince Capital banks location. that we own <laughs> shares and to, to pay less in dividends and spend more buying back their own stock. But why don't they? I don't know. It's very hard to say. For one thing, um, why do utilities pay as high dividends as they do? Yeah. Why don't they buy back their stocks? Or why don't they like Berkshire Hathaway? Berkshire Hathaway Energy reinvest it all. Right When do you ever see utility reinvesting everything that they can and all that? Um, there are some reasons for why they would do that. But I think um, it's a mix of things. But once you attract a certain shareholder base and the, you're getting bank investors and banks, they expect dividends. That's what they want. Now, it does, in theory, show you that they're consistently profitable and they really have free cash flow that they can pay out and all those sorts of ideas. Um, so, you know, that's all a plus that you could say that like it's a signaling thing. Um, The other thing is, I think they often have higher returns on it that that it depends on the bank, but it's often going to be the case that your return on equity is higher than the nominal growth of the area that you're in. And so unless you're constantly taking market share, it's going to be hard to reinvest enough of your return uh, of your equity. Um, So you should pay out dividends. But by that logic, then why didn't every, you know, Successful tech companies start paying out dividends really early in its history, Mm -hmm. right? Why didn't Apple once it was clear that they had no way to reinvest that much? You know, I think that's partly cultural things of who it attracts, right? So tech companies attract tech investors who don't want the dividends bank stocks attract bank investors who do want the dividends They both actually have the same problem, which is my return on equity is too high versus my growth rate And so I have to do something about it
0: Cool well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with, with the both of us here today on the Focus Compounding Podcast. But um, if this is the first time tuning in, uh, be sure to hit the subscribe button. Um, leave us a rating and review. If you're interested in learning more about our money management services, uh, feel free to uh, reach out to me at andrew at com. So I, I think it would be great if we could field emails from people to go over on the podcast as well. Sometimes mm-hmm. uh, the character limit on tweets may not help people be able to ask the types of questions that they want. Maybe a okay. little bit more technical or harder uh, questions. So what I'm going to do, if you want to email a question to us, uh, email me at andrew at focusedcompounding.com. I will put it in a folder and we will pull that folder up for some questions for the podcast. Should they put anything in the subject line yeah. or anything? Subject line, just say podcast. Podcast. Okay. And then ask your question. Um, because when we we're at Berkshire, there right. were some people that have said I've wanted to ask yes a uh, question. Absolutely. But it's sometimes hard to get the question out the way that I want it with the character limits limits on Twitter.
1: Right. Yeah. So the intelligent conversation sometimes requires
0: more than that
1: many characters. <laughs> yeah, correct. Um, they could do a whole thread and just do it, right. Yeah, they can tell you in five pieces. Sometimes
0: it was so funny too. People were like, "I could tell if you are going to answer my question on the podcast because you would have liked it." <laughs> oh yeah, because that's Cause what I would the do. Time when, lag. Yeah, yeah, when we do a call for questions or snap judgments, sometimes we'll make you know two episodes out of it. Mm-hmm. So I'll like it. So I know, okay, we did not go over this in the previous podcast. So if you want to do that, email me at, andrew at focuscompounding.com. I'm going to have all the information in the description. I put timestamps on the last YouTube video. Okay. I think that I imagine when you're putting out, you know, longer content, that's probably helpful. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to continue to do that. Jeff and I, we're going to kind of try to keep the podcast around an hour and a half going forward. And you can also send us
1: emails telling us and Twitter... Uh, Giving your opinions about what you want to see differently with the podcast, whether you like the longer format, you like shorter, split up, what things you prefer in terms of um, uh, different topic segments, whatever things that we do. Um, Yeah, and I guess you could pin the tweet or whatever thing to try to see if we get some questions. Because we can try out some email questions, see if that works better, building shows around that or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, because maybe if you send an email questions, they might be, uh, you can feel free to do longer, more detailed, whatever things in an email and we'll maybe do something longer around it. So not like a rapid fire thing like we do on Twitter.
0: Yeah. That's what I would rather do. I'd rather take a topic, but if you guys could just be more, um, just, describe more what you want, right? So some right, people so said not like stock-based like, compensation. <laughs> okay. Like I said, they like stock-based compensation. I'm like, okay, what about it? So maybe if you could give okay. us a paragraph of, hey, this is what I'm thinking. This would be interesting if you guys could go over this. Just topics where we could spend an hour and a half talking about it.
1: Right, and definitely not like just a ticker and a question mark. Yes, you or know, like best ideas, stuff like that. Right, We're so, not gonna do that. So that's good for like uh, Twitter, right? So that's good for the... um uh, snap judgments, things like that. That's the appropriate thing for that. Yeah. But if you have more based around a specific topic, um, like how do you um, uh, take into account what how, what stock price compensation is going to cost you as an investor or something like that? Yeah. That's a good yeah. topic. You know, yeah. that kind of way of yeah. approaching it. Yeah. Perfect.
0: <laughs> All Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with both of us. Hit the thumbs up leave us a rating review. It goes a long way for us. Reach out to me if you're interested in our money management services, and we will see you in the next podcast. Take care.